we left my 16th birthday party at TGI Fridays with cocaine and alcohol. And we were in a Porsche in the city. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today we're with Rebecca LeMasters, Ohio Regional Outreach Manager for Dream Life Recovery. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's start by going back and just telling us a little bit about yourself and your your past and where you grew up and all that good stuff, and we'll take it from there. Okay. Okay. Um, I always tell everybody now in my life now that I'm like the most, and I mean, I hope this doesn't put anybody in like a harm's way or, but I always say I'm like the most redneck business development personnel you could ever meet in your life. Um, (laughs) Because of the way that I grew up and where I grew up, I grew up in a very rural setting, um, had a dad that was well ingrained in the union atmosphere. He was a union president, you know, blue collar worker, uh, former military. But I mean, I literally grew up in a little town called Bakersville, Ohio. Um, it's just a blurb in the heartbeat of America. And it, it's, uh, I mean, I grew up like throwing cow patties and living the life and nice. just like a Laura Ingalls type of, type of childhood, honestly. Nice. How was life growing up? Um, I mean, as a kid, you know, leading into that, it was, it it was really good. It was great. You know, I look back on it and it was very picturesque. Um, I think that things started to change a bit when my parents got divorced, you know, it's an age old story. Um, a lot of things, it was a very tumultuous, abusive relationship that I realize more now as an adult, you know, some of the things that affected me definitely. But as a kid, I think that I, you know, released myself, my stress at, in, in helping others. You know, I started to be an advocate at a very uh, young age because I couldn't control what was really going on inside my household. You know, at, at age like eight, eight or nine, everything just kind of crumbled and fell apart. So, you know, from that point on, um, things just were, they were different. It was a little bit more of an uphill battle than I thought probably as a younger child. Did at that young of an age, I mean, the, 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 that trauma and those experiences, uh, could you tell that that, that was affecting you? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, anatomically, your brain just doesn't know how to process things, you know, as a kid, you just, you're living in each moment and you're just, you're, you're just trying to get by and you believe what the masses of adults are telling you, but I really do look back on it. And I was, um, I I, I was an, I, I think maybe a little bit, I had a lot of anxiety, I became an extrovert to try to get over that. And I had this persona of like the comedian. And like I said, I was always helping people and just friends with everybody across the board. But inside, I was really just, I I was kind of crying out 
and kind of dying inside all the time, you know, and I really didn't know how to tell my parents to tell my, you know, peers or, or, you know, teachers, adults, you, you don't know how to deal with that. So I remember, you know, always being in like this one specific nurse's office as a kid, like it was a constant thing. Like I, I remember how to make myself have a fever, how to do, I mean, it was just like, and I would spend, you know, it, one day a week in her office. And I think that was like the therapy that I was needing to get, but didn't know that as a kid, you know? Right. And I talked to so many people that go through the same thing. I went through the same thing. I mean, when you're hurting inside as a kid, you don't know how to deal with those emotions. And so it goes into people pleasing and being the comedian and doing anything you can to let people think that you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think at that age too, is when I started some of my probably uh, addictive qualities, as I would say, um, you know, I, I started to sneak things that gave me pleasure, you know, just that I could as a kid, you know, food, you know, it was always like candy bars or this or that. And my grandparents were a big, um, they, they were just, I guess, a big part of my life as a kid, you know, when parents get divorced, the grandparents step in and my grandmother was just like, and my grandfather, he was actually, um, he was a former alcoholic. So if you, I mean, you know, that if you have addictive tendencies and you're in recovery, a lot of times you'll fulfill that with sweets, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that just happens and they, they really would enable me in that way. So I think the first addiction I had was probably like a food addiction, if that makes any sense, oh, Yeah, absolutely. you know? So, um, I look at myself in pictures and I look, you know, like a, a blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, perfect little American poster child. And then I can actually see in my pictures where the pivotal moments were in my childhood, you know, with the weight and the hair and the, I mean, everything changed for me anatomically, not just um, mentally and emotionally, you know, when that was going on. Now that I'm educated, you know, I can see that. And I think it helps me, you know, in diagnosis of people now, but um, back then, you know, as a kid, you, you don't know what you're, what you're doing. Right. Exactly. Now, when you saw that nurse, were you, was, was that just any excuse to get out of school or were you crying for help or were you actually talking to that person about anything? Um, you know, I did talk to her and I, and it did, um, it did trickle down into my family life and it, and then my parents got involved and I was saying things to her here and there that were cries for help. You know, I would talk to her about some things that were going on at home and um, she became, she became probably like the first female role model, I would say in my life after that, I wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to do what she did. Um, and so, yeah, but she did, she did get involved. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, now that I think it's becoming more in vogue, to have mental health counselors alongside guidance counselors and things like that in schools. And I think that's so crucially important 
for kids to have someone that they trust to go to to talk about these emotions that they're going through because they're you know at that age you're trying to figure everything out so i think i think the setup is better than when we were little as far as having resources and things to go to and i know mental health is becoming more ingrained in the curriculum um still not where it needs to be but it's better so yeah um well let's go on to you know middle school high school um well, you know, after I had gotten through some of the elementary stuff and my parents got divorced, you know, my mom, she moved around a lot. So, and she actually did, she married someone in military services. So I kind of became like a military brat, you know, on top of the already um, external ability to kind of put myself out there, you know, then I had that, you know, kind of in my my sidecar too. So I, I was at a different school all the time. I went to like 11 different schools. Um, so I was able to reinvent myself each time. And I think that is really how, where I honed into some of the skill sets I use as an adult, like in marketing and reading my audience and, you know, and just observing people. It was just one of the things that I was able to do. I remember like starting a new school. Most kids were like, oh man, like I'm the new kid. It's so horrible. But I'd be like, oh man, I'm the new kid. Nobody knows that I have all this crap, you know, at my behind closed doors at home, you know, like uh, nobody knows that I'm 12 years old and I'm like getting drunk every weekend. I can just move on and it'll just go away. And, you know, I mean, those things never went away. I always honed into the group of people, the popular kids that were, you know, having parties and I got involved in some sports and, you know, contrary to people's beliefs that, you know, kids that are in those certain groups don't do those things. It really is quite the opposite. You know, um, I know my experience as one of those kids being in, you know, more popular groups and sports and, you know, we, we actually had more privy to do that than I would say some of, some of the other groups of kids, you know, and I think that people still look at those kids in that type of stigmatism today. And those are, and I just, I really try because I have had children since then. I really try to teach my kids. Like I said, I was friends with everyone, but I really try to teach them that, you know, the way things look are usually not the way they are. So I think it's given, I think it's given my kids a a better, uh, a better outlook, you know, on different dynamics and groups. But, um, but I mean, it's, it was just a reinvention of the same person over and over again, because the trauma was still there. The pain was still there. Um, you know, and as I got past middle school, I, I, I went opposite with the food thing. I just didn't eat, you know? And so I became thin and I got attention from boys and, you know, that's where, like, that's where some of the really negative parts of my life just really took off. And I think this is really parallel to a lot of women's stories that are in recovery. You know, it really starts at that young age and we start to put, you know, um, male figures into where our fathers are missing and, you know, um, 
but really essentially you just really find a relationship that constantly enables you and that you can be codependent with. And it even, and like I said, it started at like 12 years old. Right. That's, you talk about parallels. I mean, you're right. I mean, so many, so many people go through the same sort of, sort of reinvention and uh, want to be liked and do everything that they think, you know, not eating or being thin or being the funny one, uh, anything to get into a uh, situation where nobody could possibly see what's on the other side. Yeah, it, it is. You really find so many ways to mask the actual pain and mask really what you're doing wrong. I mean, you know, it's not normal to be partying with, you know, older kids, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, and some adults when you're 12 years old. But at that time, I, I mean, I can't put any fault on them. Nobody knew I was so young because I'd been through so many things that were, that kids shouldn't go through that really made me into an adult at a very, very young age. You know, I saw things from that perspective. So, you know, that's, that was the persona. I was always acting older and, um, you know, it just, but I believe that is where my real addiction started because as soon as I drank, man, I just felt so good. You know, it just gave me like this exhilarating feeling and I just could be anybody I wanted. And it was excitable, not just mentally and emotionally, but anatomically, that's what alcohol does to me. You know, I have an alcohol of choice that I would prefer to drink above any other because it, you know, it just makes me feel better than any other, but it's alcohol, even though it is a downer, you know, um, it, it doesn't react with my body that way. And I feel like there's something to be said about that with addiction. Right. A lot of people that are addicted, I feel like they get the alcohol is, does react like an upper, you know, to begin with. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, <laughs> I often forget that it is truly, you know, in the purest form, a downer, but I guess for those yeah. of us that have the germ, it, it reacts completely differently. It, 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 <laughs> it, it turns us into, you know, the life of the party, I guess. Yeah. I, uh, I think that, um, it's really where I found, you know, alcohol to me has a personality and a persona. And I don't know that people that aren't addicts, they don't understand that it is, my best friend. It is my, my lover. It is my companion. Um, and it started to be all those things at a very young age. And that just doesn't change. That just becomes more ingrained in you and it becomes a deeper relationship. So I think that so many people that don't understand addiction, they look at alcohol as the substance that it is or drugs as a substance that they are. But in my personal case, I look at it as it, it has a personality to me. I mean, it sounds crazy or not. It really does. I mean, it is like if I think about going to a bar, you know, when I did go to a bar, I was going to meet my old friend. I was going to, you know, it was the thing that calmed me down. It was the thing that brought me up. It was the thing that 
took everything that made me feel bad away. I mean, that's often, that's what people do with a best friend. That's what people do when they have a a human connection with someone that they can go meet, you know, for dinner and like we do when we're in recovery, you know, we replace those bottles and those pills and those every, you know, we replace all those things with a real live person. And that is, that was the hardest thing for me to do because I wasn't getting any argument back from any substance I put in my body. And I also could degrade myself as much as I wanted to, because I had an issue with that too. There was no reason why, you know, um, I should feel as good as everybody else or look as good as everybody else. Or, you know, it was just like a, so I think putting that inside of my body too, even though it made me feel good, I knew it was bad for me. So it was like a constant double-edged sword. You know, I was beating myself up from both sides and every angle in my addiction. Absolutely. Uh, now, during during this this time of you know adolescence, were you ever? Did you ever talk to anybody, or or did you kind of just keep it in and and let it go when you when you drank or or whatever, and and just kind of cured it that way? Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't talk to my parents. I didn't talk to anyone that was close to me in that retrospect. I wish I, I wish I could have felt differently and I wish that I could have, but I, I come from a long line of functioning addicts and functioning alcoholics. So if I was going to question myself, then I would have been questioning them. You know, and who was I to question a man that was making $200,000 a year, but yet didn't have an empty liquor cupboard, didn't have a, you know what I mean? Um, I learned how to drive when I was 13 because I was driving home from bars for adults. They couldn't drive. Uh-huh. So, you know, that also was in my life. And, but it what, like I said, it wasn't in like what you usually hear, like in a bad economic situation. It was a decent economic situation. So I don't think anyone ever looked at it negatively. I think that, you know, um, go ahead. No, no, I just, I'm, no, I I get it. Yeah. It was like, you know, my, my parents, my mom, obviously she struggled a bit. My mom and my stepdad, they didn't have exactly what was on the other end of the spectrum with my dad, you know, he, but, um, without getting into too much of that, because, you know, it's not, it's not my place to tell their story, but, um, we just weren't in a bad economic situation. So I, I mean, I got, I'll I'll jump to 16. Okay. Okay. So most 16 year olds are having birthday parties where, you know, the friends are coming over, you know, they're outside, they're on the trampoline they're having water balloon fights or they're swimming or that's what I picture anyway. And that's what I tried to do for my kids. But myself, I was 16 years old and it was like, I had a, I had a routine already. You know, we were going to TGI Fridays and we were going to some of these places. Like we lived in a rural community. So we would go to a city every weekend. And I, like I said, my parents were divorced and my dad had some pretty affluent friends So we were able to have our own rooms and spend the night in the city. And at 16 years old, I was given the car keys to a Porsche and I had, I had my 12 year old sister with me and 
we left my 16 year, my 16th birthday party at TGI Fridays with cocaine and alcohol. And we were in a Porsche in the city. (laughs) So, I mean, these are things that to me, in my mind, and if, you know, thinking of my children, it scares the shit out of me. If I can say that, I'm, I mean, (laughs) I mean, it's an extremely visceral feeling, you know, to me to think about uh, children doing these things, but this is, this is how it is. This is how it starts, you know, and not my sister, my little sister, of course I was protecting her. I was her mother figure too, but, and she wasn't doing anything. She wasn't drinking, but she was seeing all this, but me, I was, you know, like I, I was, I was drinking champagne and I was like, you know, we went back to the house and I just parked a Porsche and I had a 20 year old man come over and, and I don't say boy, because I'm 16, he's 20, he's a man, Right. you know, I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't anything sexual that transpired, but it was a relationship of addiction still, you know? And I mean, like, that's the first time that I did cocaine. And I, I mean, and the, to me that that's like, that's an adult story. That's not a kid's story. Right. You know, and so that's to that's where I started. Like that's where it I guess I didn't start there, but that's where it really it got heavy. But nobody was questioning it. Wow. You know, there were no adults in my life questioning my lifestyle. So I went to I went back to school. I was like a a sophomore, I think, in this little rural school and doing the thing that schoolgirls do, cheerleader, da-da-da-da. And then Friday night, I'm like turning into, you know, an adult again. So my brain, I think, was just so back and forth, was like, am I an adult? Am I a kid? What do I do? I mean, I had so much going on inside my body. All I can, all I can like, I guess, give an example of is like, it's just like a million ping pong balls inside your body all the time. And you're just, you're just, people think you're doing so good and you're really just hanging on by a thread and trying to get by with every situation that you're in because you're an addict at this point. Right. You know, do do you remember, I mean, at all how you felt during that time? Like, you know, you're during the week self and then you're the weekend self. I mean, were you, were you happy? Were you unhappy? Was it kind of a, a, a mixed bag or mm-hmm. you know, emotionally? How were things? Um, it, it, I mean, during the week, I, I was not happy. I was depressed. I was, I stayed in my room probably 24 seven other than just in, being in school or if I had something extracurricular to do. You know, like I, I did the cookie cutter thing. Like I said, I, I was a cheerleader and I did what everybody's expectations of me were, but I was like a robot just going through the motions. And then when I would get home, I would get to my room and I could breathe and I, and I would work out constantly. I mean, just uh, my sister still tells me about all the things she remembers me doing in the loud music. And, you know, like I got into heavy metal music and then I got into like really hardcore rap music and I had no clue who I was. So yeah, I was, I was pretty mentally, I think I was pretty sick 
to be honest. Um, I did have a boyfriend at the time, you know, and then it started into like sexual things too. You know, I, I would, I didn't really, I don't think as a teenager, when you think about how they are starting to, you know, look at themselves sexually. And I mean, I was doing what people were doing in movies because I thought that's what you did, you know? So, you know, that became like an obsessive relationship too. And, um, and that was really the only thing that really kept me going. I think through the week was like having that relationship and, you know, but I wasn't happy. I definitely was a very depressed kid. Uh, so how did things progress after 16 and uh, getting into high school? Um, well, honestly, you know, I, my mom moved again. She moved from the town that we were in to a place where nobody knew me. It was a different atmosphere altogether. Um, There were some really great kids and great teachers that uh, just spoke into my life. And I uh, I got to spend some time with. I actually started going to a local radio station. And I became an intern on the station. One of the uh, instructors at OU University, he, um, he actually just took a liking to me, kind of took me under his wing. And I got involved in some small theater stuff on the radio and some slapstick stuff. And that's when I really started to, I, I started to calm down because those people, they could tell something wasn't right you know, they could tell something was wrong and they needed to surround me. And really, um, I didn't talk to them much about what was going on, but because I think that I came out of this atmosphere where I was like just this adult personality, but then I, I, we, you know, like I said, it was a totally, this school was just full of great parents, great kids, great teachers. Uh, uh, just the community was like, everybody was a part of dare. And so I, I went totally opposite. I mean, they just took me under their wing and I just started to get into coalitions and, um, everything I could speak about just say no to drugs. Then I went for full bore that way. And it really did start to shape me and change my life into a totally, totally um, different avenue, I guess, uh, I was going down. Really? A much better, yeah. a, much, a much better avenue. It really, I found a passion. I found something to fill that connection and fill that void that I had felt and I was replacing with the drugs and the alcohol. But... I really attribute it to the environment too and the geographics of it. You know, they say that it doesn't matter where you grow up. It doesn't matter, but I'm just, I'm saying, you know, I, as I cover Ohio and I'm the manager of Ohio, there are small towns that I, that I, I drive into and I get triggered. Like I want to go to the local bar. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the smell, it's the feel, it's the cars, it's the sounds, it's 
everything about that town and that area I drive into makes me want to use. And I have to, I go to a meeting. I find out where the local meeting is. It doesn't matter. You know, nobody knows you, whatever. We all have the one, one thing that connects us. So I'll go to a meeting and I will really, I'll remember, you know, why I'm not doing those things, but then I'll, I'll go into a, another town. Like when I, when my mom moved and, you know, and it's, and it's totally opposite. I feel the opposite way. I feel like, oh man, this is refreshing. And I just want to help people. And I want to be outside. I want to take a walk in a park. And so I think that when you are an addict, people don't give enough stock to the environment that you're in. And that's why, you know, like treatment, we always preach that, that, you know, the environment you're in really does make a difference in triggers and the way you feel and what you're going to do. So that's what happened when I was, when I was a kid, she, I really got plucked out of a negative environment and just, you know, I I don't know, a godsend that I was put into the community that I was put into because they definitely, um, definitely helped raise me. Wow. It's incredible. And so, uh, recovery started then. Yeah. Uh, recovery started at about 17, 16 or 17 years of age. Um, like I said, I started to work for the local radio station and I started to go to meetings and I started to learn. I actually started to interview people that, um, had issues with drugs and alcohol. And um, through interviewing them, they didn't know there was, I, I would just say that I was a kid and I was doing a college paper, you know, and through doing those stories, I kept a journal. I still have that journal. I have, I think over 500 stories, you know, where I don't use people's real names, but I have 500 stories that I revert to that helped me get to where I am today. Wow. So it's <laughs> kind of, I guess, uh, coined my own my own therapy, but there really just wasn't, like I said, I was living an adult lifestyle and I mean, there wasn't anything out there for me, you know, to, there wasn't anything for a 17 year old alcoholic drug addict that, I mean, there was technically, but for me to have easy access to without, you know, telling people around me what was going on, there was no resource for me to just look up in the yellow pages and be like, Oh yeah, that's where I should go. Right. You know, that's what I should do. I just kind of had to figure it out. And I figured it out by, you know, like hanging out with older people that were in AA and a good community. And, you know, it just, um, like I said, I started to coin my own therapy by interviewing these people and it, it just, it really, it woke me up to where my life was going to go and what I was going to be if I didn't straighten the hell up. Wow. That's amazing to have that kind of self-awareness. And and I know you had help, but still uh, at that age when everything is, you know, binge this and binge that, uh, that, that's, that's awesome. That is awesome. So did you kind of, as you went through uh, the years after that and, and even now did have you always I mean, this advocacy th- theme seems like it has stuck yeah 
Yeah, it really has. You know, there's there were times when I would, you know, visit old friends and visit my old stomping grounds on purpose to relapse. And I did. I relapsed every single time. Um, so I had to go through that like everybody has to go through. But I did meet someone and I did. I had my first child, you know, on top of that at a very young age. I moved out finally from my parents. I moved out when I was, um, when I was 17 and I, I stuck with the radio station. I actually drove, um, like, uh, 97 miles every, every weekend, you know, one way to the radio station and would drive back home. And that part of me too, I was kind of living a, an adult lifestyle. I really didn't know what kids were doing. Cause I never really was a kid. So that really helped me, but I moved out. Like I said, I, I started going to college. Um, I did the post-secondary thing, graduated from a program, graduated from high school, and just, I had my first child. I started, I just started a whole adult life where I didn't even step back into drugs and alcohol until I literally turned 21. And the day that I turned 21, I went out to a club with my friends and it just, bam, it was like a slap in the face. You know, it started all over again, but I was 21 now. So I gave myself the permission to do, to do those things. And then it just was a lifestyle of um, drugs, alcohol, straighten up, have a great job, be this you know, picturesque of whatever everybody wanted to see. I always had a nice home, a nice car, you know, and then I would have another baby. And I mean, my babies are two years and eight months apart to the day. And that says something not just about uh, my life, but it's about addiction too, because there are a lot of women and men, but I mean, from the perspective of a woman, that if you look at how the timeline of when they had their children, and when they relapse, it all goes together. It's all like you straighten up and you want to be a mom and a wife and have a family and you have a baby and you, you know, like I said, you're just like Susie homemaker. And then all of a sudden it all comes crashing down. And it did every single time until the last time. And the last time was 10 years ago. And it was a very, very, very bad relapse. I was actually um, in the medical field, had an amazing job, making more money than I'd ever made in my life. I graduated from, you know, a very affluent college. You know, I thought I was on the right, right track. And it just took one night to kill everything, kill the dream. And I actually was in a head-on car crash. Um, I shouldn't have lived, I'll be honest with you. But uh, the man that hit me, he was actually an IV drug user and he had just used and he had what they say, you know, in the drug world, he had nodded off at the wheel. So the, the accident wasn't even my fault, but my, my alcohol, my blood alcohol level was so high that they didn't know who to, uh, they didn't know whose fault it was. Wow. So yeah, it's just my <laughs> life went, it just, there's all these spirals and I know that's kind of a big jump, but um, 
you know, he, he had hit me head on. It technically was his fault. But like I said, the paramedics stopped me out of the car thinking I was the victim. And I had had two open cases of beer in my car, a bottle of vodka. Um, I mean, they were just like, if this man wouldn't have hit her, she probably would have killed somebody else and hit somebody else and died. You know, they were, they were just like, they didn't know what to do at the, because it's such a, it's such a, um, I guess unique situation. So I didn't get charged in the accident because of the technicality of it not being my fault. But the judge took me aside after the court case, because obviously I still had to go to court because my blood alcohol level was so high. And um, she said, you know, this is kind of strange. She said, I I don't know how to charge you. She said, but obviously you have a problem. You know, she said, I have to charge this other gentleman. He's got a problem. He almost killed you, killed himself. But she said, in retrospect, Rebecca, I think that he saved your life. You know, and when she said that, I just, I looked at her like, you know, it was just kind of like a God moment. Right. Like this is, it it was true. And we actually, I think probably saved one another's lives that night by almost killing one another. Like that is just, it's a, it's an insane thing to say, but from that day on, I vowed that my recovery was the only thing that I was going to concentrate on that was never going to happen to me again. I mean, I was a mother. I would have taken myself away from my children. I was a wife. I was all these things that I was taking myself away from for one night. Right. You know, and it just, uh, that's the insanity of it is it only takes, it only takes a second to, (laughs) for that little guy on your shoulder to say, you know, screw it, let's go have fun and, and just absolutely upend everything. It, it, it really is. It is. And that is the part of addiction that I think people don't understand. And that's why we tell our story and we talk about these horrendous things that can only, you know, be in a movie because these things are happening in real life. And these are the way people really feel. And if we don't start to understand and stop putting a stigma, you know, around the whole, you know, world and industry, I call it of addiction, then these are just going to, these are just going to be forever stories that just keep going on, you know, but I mean, from that day on, I just vowed that I would do whatever I could do to help others help myself, you know, get clean and go full force ahead in the world of, treatment in the world of recovery, whatever I could find out, you know, to do, I've been doing. Yeah. And you're, uh, married to someone in recovery too, correct? I am initially when I, I know that when I had, uh, I had gotten a hold of you, that was what I wanted to speak on was, you know, spouses that were in recovery because I think that that's a whole different ball of wax. Um, because there's a lot of relapse in recovery and a lot of people like to say, Oh, relapse is a part of recovery. It doesn't have to be relapse does not have to be a part of recovery, but unfortunately it is a lot of times. And when your spouse relapses, what do you do? 
Do you know how easy it is to want to just crack open a bottle of wine if your spouse relapses? I mean, it's like, why should I stay on this path if the person that I gave my life to and the person that I stand beside every day decided it's not important enough for him? You right. know, so it's, um, it, it, it's been difficult, but it's made me stronger because in his life, he has not been, uh, been as strong as I, I guess I have been in my recovery. He is now, he's been doing amazing. Um, I'm so proud of him, but I think the reason he's been doing amazing is because I totally cut all codependent ties. Even though we are married, I do take my vows seriously. You know, the last time he relapsed, I just said, I'm more important to me in my life and my recovery to stay with you. If this is what you're going to continue to do to your life, because it just, it puts a bombshell in my life. And I think so many women don't have, um, don't have the courage for a long time to do that. And they don't know how to do that, you know, because a lot of times you're living behind, a cl you know, closed doors anyway, nobody really knows what's going on in your life or your relationship. But, um, you know, I guess going back to that court date, that judge at that court date, she was my second female mentor. Um, sorry. No, you're fine. I just have to take a, a brief second. It, it always, it, it amazes me that people that do not know you and that are strangers to you can speak into your life and can care about you so much that you'll change your entire life. I mean, that day she changed my life. She changed my children's lives and she doesn't even know it. You know, that's one of the things that in recovery, you know, in AA, we, there's a time and place when you write a letter or you go to someone and you tell them, you know, the differences they made in your life. And, uh, she was number two on my list, but it took from the age of 12, you know, when I had the first nurse in my life, in which I still know her, I know her family. It took that long to have another female mentor speak into my life. And then, you know, I was 26 years old by then, 25, 26 years old until someone finally spoke back into my life again. And um, that's, that's tough to think about, that it took that long for someone to notice how sick I was. Right. Yeah. Have you written that letter or looked that judge up? Uh, yeah, actually. I, um, I work with her constantly on <laughs> different really? cases. Nice. <laughs> yeah, to this day, yeah. I work with her on different cases. I, um, I constantly, I, I'm in... Uh, I make communication with her. I support what she does. Um, I do a lot of things behind the scenes she doesn't even know about to try to raise money for a lot of her foundations um, just to give back to her and to what you know, she's doing for her community. Because again, there it comes down to she is trying to sustain an amazing community to keep people 
reciprocal in their relationships to keep people on the right track. And it takes that, you know, it, it takes a village to raise children, but it takes a community to keep them in recovery. So, you know, that's what we have to invest in. Right. And there, and there's, you know, there's so many people that run into judges and police officers and that don't understand recovery and don't believe in it or, or are of the punitive nature when it comes to sentencing or uh, punishments. So, yeah. uh, th there's, you know, you were extremely lucky to, to run into somebody that knew what they were doing and, and understood the, um, what, you know, like you said, how sick you were and that you needed help as opposed to being thrown away. So that, that is a, uh, an amazing testimony. Yeah. She, de she definitely, um, made me think about recovery and treatment in a whole different light. Um, there was also a female probation officer that was involved. It just happened to be, you know, all the mentors in my life were female until I met this past year, my first male mentor. Um, his name is Pat Ochoa and he is just, he's, he's changed my life so much in a year that, I mean, that's jumping way ahead, but you know, I interviewed Pat. It, oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back so, in April. so. Yeah. So, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know what he's been through and we just happened to, we just happened to get a connection on LinkedIn and, uh, we were connected by, an, an, I guess a place where I was, he wanted to visit them. It was a treatment center I was working for. And from that day, that very day on, we've never left one another's sides. We're in touch with each other constantly. It's been a little less lately because, you know, I've, I've gotten into a position where, where he has paralleled me to where I'm, I am so busy that he says, that's great. That's so, that's great that you're so busy saving people's lives that you don't have time for me. You know, that's right, Pat. Right. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's just been, it was just an amazing interaction and he's, he has been a big part of me you know, changing this season of my life. That's so, great. But yeah. Um, well, let's talk about where you work now and uh, the, the, the program and, and what you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like you said, I'm the uh, Ohio Regional Manager of Dream Life Recovery. Well, Northeastern Ohio Regional Manager of Dream Life Recovery. I guess I travel all over, but, um, this is where my territory is and they're located about two and a half hours from where I'm at in Donegal PA. And, um, I worked for some great programs up until this point, you know, previously I was in the medical field and I took a huge, like, uh, I guess cut and pay to really transition over into this field because I, I think that you know, what I was doing in the medical field, I thought that's all I could do to help the people I wanted to help. But then I didn't, because I didn't know enough about the mental health field. And that's what I think in general, you know, what the, what it populations just don't know enough about mental health and know it's such a big part of addiction and recovery. Even though I was an addict, I looked at it as a medical problem. 
rather than a mental health problem. So, you know, that speaks volumes. So I changed my entire career and, um, to get into this place, it took me, you know, starting out, uh, local for non-for-profits, starting out with the health department, and then working in a couple treatment centers in a community liaisons position and a recovery coaches position. And now, you know, the, the, um, my boss that hired me for this position today, he just really saw something in me. He's been, he's been trying to hire me for quite some time. And, um, I, I finally gave in, he's pretty persuasive, but, I'm really glad that I did because it's an amazing program. Um, they're in network with so many insurance companies because they're owned by physicians, you know, rather than being owned by, you know, like a tertiary, you know, fortune 500 company where a CEO is just investing. I mean, those are great too, but dream life is, is the real deal. It's, it's what I've been missing my entire life and my entire recovery. It is a family. It is a connection. It is, those are the people that make you feel visceral about wanting to use again. They really keep your mind, your body, your soul in check as an, as, um, an employee and as a participant. You know, a lot of the people that work for us were patients at one time or participants, as I call them. Um, so we just try to, we really try to invest in people, I guess, you know, 180 degrees because, you know, that's what it's all about. You know, you can't have a fracture in that circle. You, you have to uh, continually just be, you know, running things from start to finish to really succeed in recovery. And so um, I guess they instill that in employees and we instill that in the people we bring into treatment and we're an inpatient we're detox also, but we're an inpatient residential treatment facility also. Um, I know those are some of the things that I have to get out there. But <laughs> no, sure. What's the length? Of, I mean, what, what's the, what's the program like? How long? And um, we, like I it. said, we, we do have, we have detox and then inpatient residential. It is co-ed male and female. We offer, um, we actually offer marital counseling. We're one of the only places in the area that offer that because a lot of people don't want to take on couples. You know, that's a whole whole different dynamic, but our clinical staff is just bar none. They are, they are just, uh, they're master, they're master clinicians educated in trauma and they just really, they take on the hard stuff. Um, but it is a 30 day program. Obviously people, sometimes they don't stay that length of stay. Sometimes they stay longer, but that's recommended. That's what we would call a full program is coming in for your detox and then your 30 days. Um, we provide all the transportation, you know, we provide adventure therapies and equine therapy and, ex, um, experiential therapy. I mean, it sounds just like a ploy, but there's, there's just so much that we offer. I, I don't know where to cut it off, to right. be honest. No, and you I know, think it's we, great that it's owned by physicians. Like you said, that it's not a special interest or, or, you know, own 
like like some others are uh, that the, the physicians that own it run it they do and they actually i mean and they're in contact with us all the time you know you sometimes you work with physicians at a place like this and the medical director you know you never even meet them you know they're just a name on a check or a name on the wall but our physicians definitely Dr. Schwartz and Dr. Ventry are the two that I'll speak of because those are the two that I've met and they are they're just uh they're very personable they're very down to earth and they just want success for us as employees but they want success for our participants definitely it's a passion of theirs um we have uh Ladice Morales she is also our um she's on site there and they are they, they're from Florida originally and they did like Ladice her when she first brought me on she was just transitioning and moving to Pittsburgh so that in itself is huge you know that people that she took that leap to move to Pittsburgh because it is in Donegal PA you know because her residence was Florida that just doesn't happen very often so you can tell you know um, how much they're invested in the company. Dave Bontempo, he's our chief of marketing. He's he's my boss and he also lives in PA and he's uh he's a big part of what we do in our outreach program. We just got off of our Zoom call right before I talked to you. Um I text him about 3 weeks ago, I think, and when I text him, I'm always excited about something, some new business adventure or you know, something that, that I really want to, I want to be part of, of dream life. And he never, ever puts me down about anything. I mean, nothing. He never says that's a bad idea. You know, I mean, he just, and I told him, I said, Dave, you're, you are such a mentor to me, you know, just seeing his business skills are just, I don't know. Like sometimes I tell him he, his vernacular, the way he talks, the, you know, his personality, like if you didn't know what he did, he'd remind you of like this, this mafia guy, maybe, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, but it's just the opposite because he himself went through recovery. You know, you can look up his story. I don't know if you know Dave or not. Um, if you don't, he would be a great person to interview, but he just, he's been through it and he respects our stories um, you know, but he tells us that we never have to speak about it. You know, if we don't want to talk about our recovery or if we're in recovery, we don't have to, but if we do want to, you know, do it the right way, do it respectfully and do it to save a life. Don't do it to get attention on yourself, you know, do it humbly. Um, so you can tell, like, I just, I love where I am. I love my job. I love my coworkers. I, uh, I, I really feel like I've, I'm a success story in something where there's so much tragedy. Right. That's, that's great. I'm happy for you. And uh, we'll put all that stuff on uh, all their information, Dream Life uh, Recovery, social media and the website and all that on the, the episode notes when this comes out. And um, in closing, what would you say to an individual who may have gone through what you went through uh, or a family member, or somebody that's desperate at this point, uh, what advice uh, 
or words of wisdom would you give them? I think the one thing I would say is do not, uh, don't isolate. Don't isolate and don't hide behind closed doors and wait for someone to notice that something's wrong or someone to come to you. If you're going to cry out for help, actually do it vocally. Uh, I know it's hard, but you're not being weak. You're actually doing something very heroic for yourself and for your loved ones, for everyone around you. If you stand up and say, I need help. I have a problem. There are so many people like myself, like yourself, Trevor, who are out here to really help people. And um, unlike the path that I took, you know, I was constantly in a tornado of who am I? What do I do? Is someone going to notice how sick I am? You really, I know you feel like it, you have to do that. You have to hide because it's a shameful thing, but it's not. There are so many people in this world that are sick with addiction and need help. And then there are that many people here to help, to help you get through it. You know, I mean, someone could call me up a total stranger and I would do everything in my power to help them, help their family, help their, help them retain their job. I mean, th there are people out here that are trained to do it. And it's because some of us have actually walked the walk and we had to go, you know, we had to shovel through the shit to get here, to right. be honest. Right. Not, I mean, just to put it in a very verbal mannerism. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to help. We're going to, we're going to do whatever we can to save your life and, um, and everyone around you. We're going to, we're going to surround you with recovery. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for for uh, spending some time, and uh, I wish you all the best, uh, best of luck, and uh, and to Dream Life, everybody check them out. We'll put all that stuff up there, but uh, Dream Life Recovery, good luck in the future. I, uh, again, I appreciate it. Uh, me too. Thank you so much. I know that, you know, everything I talked about today was not one thing <laughs> that I had written down. Um but that really just gives, um, gives thought to what you're doing. And, you know, the, this is the first, I think the first thing I've done where I felt very calm and I feel like I could trust you. And so I appreciate you so much because even though you're thanking me, the things that I, I said today and some of the, some of the things that I got out that I haven't talked about in a very long time are probably, this is probably the best therapy I've had in about five years. Well, that's so great. I want to thank you well, for what, what you've done and allowing me to just um, tell my story and, and be okay with uh, being honest about it. Hey, no, that's what this is for. So uh, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll uh, just keep on doing our thing. You know, that's all we can do. Absolutely. Just keep doing it. I appreciate you so much. Absolutely. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.